You are listening to the Tom Elif Podcast. Tom Elif pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Elif. Exodus chapter 4, in just a few moments, we're going to stand together and read from the Word of God. During these uh, Wednesday evening sessions together, uh, for the next several weeks or maybe months, I'm going to be going back into the passage of Scripture which we uh, examined on the previous Sunday and seeking to draw from that passage some little nugget and apply it to our lives, something that uh, you might have thought about and as you read that passage of Scripture you said, you know, I'd like to dig a little deeper in that uh, verse or in that passage. And or you might be saying, well, I think Brother Tom might have, he overlooked some truths there. Well, I'll guarantee you there's not any passage of Scripture that I know all the truths about, nor do you. And so each Wednesday evening we're going to go back into the passage that we studied the previous Sunday and seek to make some further application to our lives. So for those of you who are guests, not only am I glad you're here this evening, but um, I also want to say to you that for the past several weeks we have been studying together from the book of Exodus. What an incredible book. Now, somebody said, Brother Tom, I know that you are doing this so that your messages will coincide with this movie, The Prince of Egypt. And uh, when they have said that to me, I said, obviously, you don't know me very well. The truth of the matter is, the folks out in Hollywood called and said, Brother Tom, if you'll preach a series on Exodus, we'll do a movie. That's exactly how that happened. Uh, actually, there's no correlation whatsoever in terms of timing. But Exodus is a wonderful book, and we'll spend more time in Exodus than you would spend at the movie, and it'll probably cost you less, as a matter of fact. As we looked at chapter 1, we saw the necessity of affliction. The necessity of affliction. There's no growth without pressure. And the children of Israel had been in Egypt, living in the lap of luxury for almost 400 years when there arose, the Bible says, a king who knew not Pharaoh. He didn't remember Pharaoh and his experience with Joseph and what a big boy Joseph was in Egypt years gone by. All he knew was that the children of Israel were growing rapidly in numbers. And so you remember what happened. He put out a decree that all of the male children when they were born were to be killed. And also he began to make life a little tough for the children of Israel. He was afraid that they would strike an alliance with the enemies of Egypt. Now why was God letting that happen to his people? Because they in their minds were not ready to go back where they belong, to the land of promise, the land that God had promised to Abraham years earlier. And God's just getting them uncomfortable enough in Egypt so that when Moses shows up, they'll be glad to follow his leadership, the necessity of affliction. In chapter 2, we looked at the hidden work of God. The fact that even though the children of Israel didn't know what God was doing, God knew what he was doing, and he was raising up a deliverer, young Moses, reared at the feet of some of the finest scholars in Egypt and yet nursed by his own Hebrew mother. 
at the age of 40, seeking to do good, actually. Moses is found out. He runs to the backside of the desert to a land called Midian. There he joins himself to the family of a Midianite priest, marries one of his daughters, and for 40 years, Moses takes a different kind of training. He trains as a shepherd, not bad training for dealing with people. And so we read in chapter 2 about the hidden work of God. All this was going on without the children of Israel's knowledge. All they knew was life was getting tougher for them by the minute. In chapter 3, we saw how to discover God's plan for your life. And we realize that God has a plan. He has a will for us. And we saw how to discover it as we saw God's encounter with Moses through the burning bush. Then in chapter 4, last Sunday, we noticed some principles we need to remember when God has a work for us to do. Because chapter 4 deals almost entirely with Moses' attempts to get out of this job. Verse 1 of chapter 4 we find Moses saying, God, I'll go back to Egypt and they won't believe me. The very last verse of the chapter, we find that he has gone back to Egypt and the people do believe him. So what transpired between verse 1 and verse 31 in chapter 4? Well, you remember what God told Moses to do. He said, well, I'll, first of all, I'm going to take what you have and give you what you don't have. He said, what do you have in your hand? He said, well, a staff. He said, well, throw it down. And the staff became a snake, and then it became a staff or a rod again when he picked it up. And God said, now that'll help those folks believe you. And then he said, what else have you got? He said, well, just the clothes I've got on. And God said, all right, stick your hand inside your garment there and pull it out. He did, and it became leprous. He said, now stick it in there and pull it out again. And he said, well, I'll be. It's made white again. And so uh, God said, well, that's pretty impressive. And then he said, let me give you something you don't have. If you get there and they don't believe you for those two things, you take some water from the river, pour it on the ground, and it will become blood. Now Moses still protested. And by the way, the title of tonight's message is Arguing with God. Arguing with God. Moses still protested. He said, God, he said, uh, and you can read this in verse 10. He said, you haven't talked to me before, so you probably don't know how I speak, but I'm slow of speech. I'm not a good leader. How many people were in Egypt then that he was going to lead? About 1.6 million people. He said, I'm not equipped to do that. And God says, who do you think made your mouth? And Moses said, well, look, just get somebody else, send them. And the Bible says in verse 12 that God became angry. And he said, look, you have a half-brother. His name is Aaron. He's a pretty good speaker. And I'll tell you what needs to be said. You tell Aaron, and he'll speak for you. And with that agreement, Moses then went to his father-in-law. With his blessing, took the family, headed back to the land of Egypt, dealt with a, a critical family matter. On the way back, we saw that when God has a work for you to do, he doesn't waste your family in the process. He intends to bless your family. And ultimately, we find the people of Egypt worshiping God because they're so delighted that they are going to be delivered from the bondage and slavery of Egypt.
Now this evening I want to speak on this subject, arguing with God. And before we stand together and read a verse or two of Scripture together, let me tell you that there are a lot of people who do not believe that they argue with God. Because in their mind, an argument is something that always transpires verbally. Of course, it involves your intellect. But an argument is protesting verbally. But God, what about this? But God, what about that? And Moses did that. But let me tell you that there are other ways of arguing with God than through some kind of verbal transaction. You see, if you and I are aware of anything in our life which God is addressing, and God is saying, I want to change. I want it to be different. I want you to begin doing this, or I want you to stop doing that. Or perhaps God is saying, I have a plan for your life. It's a beautiful plan. It's going to require some incredible faith on your part. But if you, like Moses, will step out, I will show you how I'll bless you and your family. It's so big, you can't do it without trusting me. Now, you don't have to protest verbally as Moses did. All you have to do is resist. Just refuse to respond. Now, let me give you an example. Most of us here tonight, many of us here anyway, not most of us maybe, but many of us here are parents. We have children, some are young, some are older. Uh, maybe some of you have children who, like ours, for the most part, are grown and have gone from home. But you remember a little bit about raising children. And you realize that an argument doesn't necessarily take place because a child says, uh, but what about this, or what about this, or why? That child can also argue with you by simply refusing to obey you. For you see, as long as that child refuses to obey you, even without speaking it, the child is saying, I don't believe your plan is best. I have a better plan. I want to do something else. I do not want to do what you desire for me. I'm quite confident that there are many of us here this evening who are arguing with God. Now, to you, the thought would be almost abhorrent that you, of all people, the Wednesday night prayer meeting crowd, who are here even during spring break, I mean, the thought that you would actually say to God, I've got a better plan, well, that's abhorrent. You would say, I never would say that. Well, let me ask you this question. Is there any area of your life about which God is speaking to your heart. You know what he's saying. You know what he wants. It may be a big deal. It may be a little deal. It may be something like a habit or an attitude. Or maybe God has simply, by his Holy Spirit, impressed you that you and some other brother or sister have fallen out and you need to go and be reconciled. But in each instance, you have failed to do it. 
Now, you haven't stood up on a pew here and shaken your fist in the face of God and say, God, I've got a better plan. But that's what you believe. Because if you didn't believe that, you would already have done what God has said. So tonight I want to speak on the subject of arguing with God. And I want you to think if there's any area of your life, you know God's speaking to you. Maybe it's about your prayer life, your devotional life. It may be some moral issue. Maybe what you watch on TV. Or it may be how much you watch TV. It may have to do with the way you spend your money. You can tell a lot about who's your God by looking at your checkbook. Or your credit card list. You can find out pretty soon who you serve, whom you serve. So God is addressing that issue in your life. He wants a change, but you would admit that as of tonight, you have not agreed with him. Well, if any of us are like that, we are arguing with God. And I want to show you what it reveals tonight. So stand with me, if you will, please. And let me remind you that in verse 10, Moses has said, I am not a good speaker don't send me. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said unto him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the speechless? That would be a better word there for dumb. That, that is an older word to mean speechless. It doesn't mean ignorant here. Who makes the speechless? Or the deaf? Or the seeing? Or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Now Moses does something rather ridiculous. He still protests, verse 13. He said, Oh, my Lord, send, I pray you, by the hand of him whom you will send. In other words, he says, Lord, send the right person. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Let's just stop right there. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Why? Moses is arguing with him. Arguing with God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, trusting that you will open our spiritual eyes and ears to the truths of your word. Lord, this is your word, not some men's words about you. We're not examining a fairy story here, a fable or a myth or a legend. We are reading an actual historical account of something that transpired years ago between you and a man by the name of Moses. And Lord, I pray that we will learn from his experience about how foolish it is to argue with you. And Lord, help us to see tonight that arguments with you do not necessarily require some verbal exchange, but that we simply argue with you by refusing to obey, to submit, to surrender to your will. Lord, teach us that tonight. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me just say for those of you who say, what's happened to Brother Tom's voice? That it was last Sunday night, I believe, that I sang myself hoarse. Truth of the matter is, 
I've been running from what all of you have had for months, and it may have caught me. And I have taken various remedies. I have enough zinc in my body that when I pass the refrigerator, the magnets jump off and stick to my shirt. And, and unless you've got something that really works, you know, uh, and I'm talking about something like this, Brother Tom, why don't you go out and shoot yourself? That, that I have considered. That's one thing left. But unless you've got something you know that really works, don't even talk to me about it. And I stopped short of voodoo. I don't do voodoo. But I have thought about it today once or twice. Uh, I really have. <laughs> All right, now, let's talk about arguing with God. I want to mention several reasons it's absolutely foolish to argue with God. First of all, when you argue with God, you are ignoring God's sovereignty. You are ignoring God's sovereignty. Now, what does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? That means that God is over all. The psalmist put it this way. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they who dwell therein. God knows everything. Omniscience. God has all power. He's, He's all omnipotent. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. God is sovereign. There is not anything in existence that God cannot handle, does not know about, and there is nothing that happens which catches God by surprise. Nothing ever dawns on God. Nothing ever occurs to him. The light never turns on in God's, in God's uh, brain. God is sovereign. He is over everything. Now, when you argue with God, for all practical purposes, you are boxing with someone against whom you, you will never win. You do not have arms that long to box with God and win. He is over everything. And the interesting thing about Moses' argument with God is that he constantly tries to clue God in on some things Moses thinks God doesn't know. Look at verse 10. God, you haven't spoken with me before. You probably didn't know that I stuttered. Do you think God said, well, gee whiz, Moses, you're right. I didn't know you, well, if I had, I've just spent 80 years. I mean, I arranged your deliverance in that little basket and all that business in Egypt, and I've spent 40, and the whole time I never heard you say a cotton-picking word. Moses, why didn't you tell me you stuttered? I'd have gotten me an eloquent man to be leader. No, God's sovereign. God had just the man he wanted in Moses. By the way, did you know that before this study of book of Exodus is over, we're going to read about Moses, that of all the people on the face of the earth, none was ever as meek as Moses. That word meek doesn't mean weak. It means trainable. Nobody 
was ever as trainable as Moses. That's why God could use him. But now we see Moses, he's just a little, he's a little diffident. He's a little intractable. He, he's a little pushy here with God. He said, but God, and God says, Moses, listen, who do you think made that mouth that's on your face? Who makes ears, Moses? Who do you think it is that makes it so that some people hear better than others and some people see better than others and some people speak better than others? Don't you know I'm running this show, Moses? So when you argue with God, you are ignoring his sovereignty. And I'll just be honest with you. One of the hardest lessons for any of us to learn is that God is boss. Amen. That not anything he does is wrong. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. You know, uh, occasionally in my praying, I, uh, I find myself trying to tell God some things that I think he doesn't know. Now, Lord, you know, oh, so-and-so over here, you know he's sick. And it's almost like I can hear God say, you're kidding. Him sick? What's he got? No, see, God knows all that. God's running the show. God is sovereign. And when you argue with God, whether it is in a verbal transaction or just in your thoughts or whether you're just not going to do something because you believe you've got a better way, you are ignoring his sovereignty. And listen, his, so listen, his sovereignty is on your side. You say, what do you mean? If the Bible says this, I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord your God. Thoughts of good and not of evil, to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope, to give you a future. Those are my thoughts toward you. Now I might have to hem you up like Israel down here in Egypt to get you to wake up to the truth. But my ultimate intention for you is that you live a life that glorifies me. That's what God's saying. So when you argue, you are ignoring his sovereignty. Secondly, you are indicating, and I really hate to use this word, but it really fits. Lord, is there a different word I could use? I think the Lord just said no. You are indicating your stupidity when you argue with God. You are indicating your stupidity. God says, Moses, you go. I'll be with your mouth. I'll teach you what to say. And Moses says, well, Lord, I really want you to send the right person. And you could almost hear God in heaven saying, well, Moses, I thought you were the right person. You mean you're not the right person? No, Lord, they won't believe me. I stutter. I've been nothing but a shepherd for these 40 years. Lord, you've got the wrong guy. Now think about it, in the light of God's sovereignty, how stupid that is. You see, to argue with God, just to know what God wants you to do, 
and not to do it is stupid. I didn't say that you were worthless. I didn't say that you and I are not important to God. I'm just saying it is the height of stupidity to argue with God. You're not going to tell him something he doesn't know. You're not going to come up with a plan better than his. You don't love yourself more than God does. You don't see down the, end, the road, but God does. You don't know what the future is all about. God knows. And so to argue with him is just plain stupid. You say, well, amen, like Richard said down here, amen. Well, all right. What is there in your life God is asking you to do and you've not done it. You see, in, in, in addition to being sinful and rebellious and unrighteous, it's stupid not to do what a holy, perfect God has indicated is right for your life. When uh, I was growing up, my father, seated right back here, did something that I thought, as I look back on it, I think was pretty smart. He, um, I wanted a car. Some of my friends had cars, but I was not of the legal age to drive. And so my dad said, I'll tell you what, let's do. Let's get a car. We'll work on it together. When we get all put together, you'll be old enough to drive. That was wonderful. That way I could go to school until everybody had a car. The fact that it wouldn't run had nothing to do with it. So we found a car, uh, a 1926 Model T, $100. Right, Dad? Wasn't that it? $100? Yeah. And it was, and you guys will understand this, in a basket. It just about put my dad in a basket, too, before it was all over. This, this car was in a jillion different pieces. Now, I'll tell you, Henry Ford was a, was a smart buzzard. There's some things about his life that I don't particularly appreciate, but, but the guy was very clever. For instance, he changed the head size on all the boats. Uh, every year so that you had to get a new set of wrenches for each year of Model T. Not only that, when those bolts were nuts were delivered to his factory, he would only take them if they were packed in boxes designed by him, and he would have his guys take those boxes apart, and the oak boxes made floorboards for his Model Ts. I mean, the guys, you know, the guy had a, had a brain. So we spent the first year and a half trying to figure out what size wrenches fit on this thing? You know, I mean, we had a great time together, my dad and I, and finally this thing began to take shape. By the way, I don't think it ever got cranked, but it was beautiful in the backyard for a while. I did tear out a Cape Jasmine bush and drive it through a chain link fence, didn't I, Dad? I think before it was all over. But at any rate, I remember uh, one day we were working on 
some of you men will know this, maybe some of you ladies. Um, but we were working on the planetary gears in the transmission of this thing. And my father said to me, look, let's lift this thing over here. And I said, well, no, let's just turn it. He said, I'll take this in, you take that in, we'll lift it over. And as he was telling me to lift it up, I just, in my mind, argued with him, thought, no, I'm not going to do it, and I just rolled it over. I rolled it over on the thumb of his right hand. Planetary gear on a Model T weighs about six and a half tons. My father's next words were, now he didn't say them with this much composure, but his words were, Tommy, that was stupid. And he grabbed his thumb and ran upstairs to the kitchen. That's the closest I've ever heard my father come to cursing. I mean, he wouldn't even say a mild darn when he was in the ministry much less, you know, anything else. And so he said, that was stupid. Now, the truth of the matter is, he had a thumb that was incapacitated for a considerable period of time because I argued with him. I never said, I'm not going to do it, Dad. I'm going to disobey you. I just didn't do what he said to do. So if you argue with God, you are ignoring his sovereignty but you're also indicating your stupidity. But let's get down to an issue that I think impacts all of us here that uh, before we leave this evening. When you and I argue with God, not only do we ignore God's sovereignty, indicate our stupidity, we impede others' salvation. We impede others' Salvation. What was going on in Egypt while Moses was arguing with God? The children of Israel were waiting for their deliverer. When was that deliverer going to come? When Moses got through arguing with God. Now, in your life and in my life, there are people who are just waiting for us to get on the same wavelength as God. God wants to use us to touch their lives. In many instances, he may want to use us to share with them that by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus, they can have eternal life. But if we're arguing with God, we're impeding their salvation. God has that plan. He's going to have their life touched. He wants to use us, but as long as we're arguing with him, we're impeding their salvation. I have a friend who was a professor of evangelism at Southwestern Seminary. I say was, he still is. He's been there for many, many years. And now uh, my son-in-law, Greg Mann, has the privilege of having him as a professor there at Southwestern, Dr. Roy Fish. And Dr. Fish told how when he was a uh, young seminary student himself, fresh from the University of Arkansas, had come down to Southwestern, 
that he pastored a little country church not far from Fort Worth, Texas. And each week when he would go to that church on the weekend, he would come to a fork in the road. And there at the fork in the road, this uh, farmer had set up sort of a market in the back of his truck. And Dr. Fish said, the very first time I saw that man there, God impressed upon my heart that I need to stop, not to buy vegetables, but to share with him the wonderful truth that in Christ he could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But he said, you know, as I drove on by, I thought to myself, I'm just a student preacher. He is a wise and sage and an older farmer. The time's not right. There were some other people buying things from him. I, I don't need to stop there. Not today. I'll wait till it's better. He just had an argument with God. The next weekend, he drove down there, and the man's truck was there. And he thought, I, I really need to stop. And then he thought, well, I'd be foolish not to, st to stop, brother, and not have any money, and I don't have any money. So he drove on. He was arguing with God. This happened another week or two. One weekend, he drove down to his church, fully determined that he was going to witness to this man. And when he got to that intersection, that fork in the road, there was no truck and no market. So later on that day, when he was talking with someone, he said, where is the man that sells the vegetables up there? And they said, oh, you didn't hear. There was a terrible accident two days ago. A semi came through that intersection, just took out the truck, the market, and the man. You can ignore God's sovereignty and do that by arguing with him, and that just indicates stupidity, really, because you're saying that the one who knows best doesn't really know the best. But you need to see that there are consequences that involve others than you when you argue with God. When Jeannie and I and our family moved to Africa, and God began to give me a grasp of the Zulu language. I determined that I was going to go out on the streets of Bulawayo, where we lived, and share my faith. And uh, one day I saw a man, a blind man, leaning against a wall, one foot pulled up against the other, uh, one leg rather pulled up against the other, which was sticking right straight out on the pavement. He was literally trying to stop people as they came by. He had his cup, you know. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you need to witness to him. And I thought, I know, but Lord, this is rush hour, and there's all these people, and uh, there's bound to be a better time. I mean, just stupidly ignoring the sovereignty of God. God had impressed me. I need to share my faith with him. Here I've gone 7,000 miles to be a missionary. God's shown me someone with whom I ought to share the gospel, and I was not worthy. Well, I argued with God. That went on for several weeks. Well, 
I, I was engaged to speak at a uh, camp to a lot of preachers. And I was praying that the Lord moved mightily, and the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, well, I, I will, but you better go share, you better go settle that, that issue that I've already talked with you about. How can you speak to them about obedience if you haven't been obedient? So I, I, I knew who God was talking about. I got on my motorcycle and uh, drove downtown, came to the block where this man always, uh, always was sitting, and uh, there he was. I was relieved. I remember the story about Roy Fish, you know, and I, I was a little relieved he was still there. But you know what I did? I thought I've got to collect my thoughts. Boy, talk about stupid. I've got y'all have never done this, I know. I've got to collect my thoughts. So, you know, it was going to be my first time to witness in the Zulu language and in the belly, and and uh, so I I drove that motorcycle around the block. Well, going around the block, I really remembered Roy Fish's story, and I got to thinking, you know, I'm going to turn the corner. There's going to be people gathered there, police. That guy's going to be nailed up against the wall, you know, splattered all over the pavement, and I'll have not witnessed to it. So I, you know, zipped on around the corner, and much to my relief, he was still there. So I uh, parked my motorcycle, walked over and sat down beside him, pulled my foot up underneath my leg just like he had his, left my other leg sticking around the sidewalk just like he did, introduced myself. He told me his name. I had it written down in one of those Bibles that is uh, pretty smoky right now. And... Um, I asked him if he'd ever made the discovery of knowing Jesus in a personal way or would he say he's in the process? He said, I don't know anything about that. And so I proceeded to share the gospel with him. And uh, I was just oblivious to what else was going on, but a crowd had gathered. There were all these people who just normally, you know, just walked by him. A crowd had gathered there in the street. And I, I looked up, and there's all these legs, you know, attached to bodies which have heads on them. And um, I realized this is pretty good. These people are hearing the gospel. And then I asked him if he wouldn't like to make that personal transaction, trusting Jesus. He said, yes, I would. And it's amazed me. Everybody on that sidewalk bowed their head. As I led this man in a very simple prayer, which changed his life forever. He won't be crippled in heaven. He won't be blind in heaven. But I will have to say to him in heaven, I'm sorry that you had to go several days without knowing Christ because of my stupidity. Because I argued with God. I could have shared with you a week earlier, two weeks earlier, but I didn't. You see, when you argue with God, you not only ignore his sovereignty, indicate your stupidity, you impede others' salvation. Now, I'm glad they were still there when Moses got back to the land of Egypt. Moses, I'm sure, was glad they were there as well. But how silly it is to argue 
with God. Father, I pray, trusting that you'll use what's been said here to show us the folly of knowing in our heart what is right to do, but just arguing with you by putting it off, saying, I'll wait till another time, when really the truth of the matter is we're saying, our way is better than yours, dear God. Father, remind us that our Savior Jesus once asked a rhetorical question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say unto you? Father, teach us the folly of arguing with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Would you keep your head bowed just for a moment? We're going to stand in a few moments and our celebration singers will lead us in a chorus of invitation. This is your personal invitation to respond tonight to what God is saying to you. To just quit arguing with Him and say, Lord, I know what is right. And so tonight I'm going to do that. In fact, James 4:17 says, if a man knows what is right and does it not, to him and his sin. So Lord, I'm going to do what's right tonight. You may be here without Christ. You say, you know, Tom, I hear you talking about people who know Jesus, but I don't know him. I've never trusted him as my Savior, but I do want my sins forgiven. And I understand that Jesus came to this earth and he paid the wages of my sin, which is death, and that he's risen from the grave. He's alive. And I want to know that living Savior. I want him to be my savior. I want to accept him by faith. Well, this, this evening would be the perfect time to do that. And I would encourage you, when we stand in a few moments, begin singing. There'll be counselors here. You come find a counselor and say something this simple. I want to trust Jesus as my savior. Maybe you've done that before. And you know that Christ is in your heart. But you also know that God has asked you to share that. In fact, Jesus said, if a man confesses me before men, him will I confess before my fathers in heaven. But if a man denies me before men, him will I deny before my fathers in heaven. And so you want to make that public. No, I'm not going to ask you because the Bible doesn't say you have to do this. I'm not going to ask you to come up on a platform, give some kind of speech. But I would encourage you to come, take the hand of a counselor and say, look, I want to openly confess this truth. Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. You may not be a member of a church, or maybe you're a member of a church you don't, where you don't live. And God's been leading you to this church. You, you've been fed here week by week. And for some reason tonight, God's just put it on your heart. Join this church tonight as an individual, as a family. Well, don't argue with him. If the Lord's impressed you, just make that decision. The prayer rails will be open here. You may want to come and pray. Prayer warriors will be coming. Counselors will be here. I'm going to ask those of you, if you've made a decision in recent weeks and we've not introduced you, I'm going to ask you to come be seated where it says seating for new members over here to your right. This is your invitation to say yes to Jesus. So while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let's stand together. Father, I pray trusting now that your Holy Spirit will just make it clear to each one of us how we should respond to this, your invitation. And I pray that we wouldn't argue with you, 
that we just say yes to you. And I pray.